Welcome to Six Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. In our first episode, we talked about growing the Venn family. In the second, we talked about what it's like if circumstances require you to break that family up. And in this brief episode, we're going to talk about the reality of startups and the types of compromises they force you to make. Hi, I'm um, Mal Rousel, and along with Vaughan Rousel, who's now Vaughan Ferguson, um, started out Vend and essentially took care of all things to do with uh, people and culture. I'm like the ultimate tester because I can break anything. I can You give me a piece of software and, and I'll break it. Um, I'm very good at doing that. I can start this out by saying like in the very early days I thought it was hilarious because I would do these um, partner training um, right back very early and um, I would always encounter a bug, always. And so I would have Vend loaded on like three browsers, um, Firefox, Safari and Chrome or something like that. So I'd come across a bug and I'd go, oh, and look, it also works on Safari. And I'd just go over to Safari, little known to them because I'd encountered a bug in uh, Firefox, which meant I could go no further. <laughs> so um, in terms of... Um, you know, rely. I mean, this was the very, very early days, but yes, having to kind of skip from this browser to that browser um, in order to um, seem, you know, make it look like a feature as opposed to <laughs> a little bit of a, um, a glitch. Hello, my name's Nick Holdsworth. I started out kind of I guess doing a range of different stuff, customer facing roles, support. Actually, I convinced my I convinced Vaughn to let me have a go because my first IT job was on the support desk for a point of sale company. This is in Edinburgh back in uh, late nineties. Uh, but then over time, that sort of evolved into uh, chief marketing officer, building up the go to market functions. You have to be you have to be very empathetic as well because t- typically in a tech startup, you've got a lot of tech savvy people, and it's like that's just a small bug. Just switch browsers, not a big deal. It's like, could you could you explain that to your mother the first time she'd ever picked up an iPad? <laughs> it's like, actually, if you want to reach mass market, you need to have quite a different mindset and who your user is. Be careful of your own biases. Um, I think... Especially when it's a retail point of sale and that business's revenue critical. goes through the very thing that your product is. Yeah, they're literally just kind of, yeah, like pressing it day in, day out. And a, and a 10 second delay can add up pretty quickly to hours over the course of a week. There was a really great article... I think Ben Gracewood, who was our chief engineering officer, um, shared around the two types of engineers, stables versus volatiles. I don't know if you've read this. Um, I'll share the link so you can post it to your listeners afterwards. Volatiles, Vaughn's a volatile, right? He'll just kind of, he'll just build it, ship it, and then build it and ship it and build it and ship it and keep doing that until it's kind of got all the things that a customer needs. Ben and a lot of the engineers that came on are are more stables, right? They, They actually... They have to deal with that mess and make sure that it's kind of stable and continues to grow. And therefore, the next time we're going to add features to it, they want to make sure they're not, not going to end up painting ourselves into a corner where we've got challenges in the future. 
and most startups have a kind of blend of both. In the early stages, it's probably more volatile, and in the later stages, it's more stable. And a lot of the tension exists around that, where there's a lot of relitigating earlier decisions, saying, well, you know, why haven't we done X, Y, Z? We've basically got this massive mess that we have to clean up. You know, zero, as you well know, is, is, is a classic example of that. Um, but the reality is it's, it's very easy to say, oh, we should have done this back in the day. But if we had done all of those things right, maybe we would never have had a product. We would never would have been able to get to market. We would never would have been fast enough. And so it would all be a purely academic discussion. And so I think that, that healthy tension is important for a company. I think the first time it really kind of hit home for us was oh, late 2011, maybe 2012. We had, we had, a, we had an engineering team. I know um, Kyle... Uh, Kyle was kind of leading the team, but it was pretty small at the time. We um, we had a few integrations. So we had a Zero integration. We had a Shopify integration that was performing really well. And we had a few discussions with Shopify around. We were really the only point of sale in their marketplace and, you know, easily the best. And evidently there was this kind of proposition for retailers between point of sale, e-commerce and, and back office accounting. And, um, and so, yeah, we were pretty keen to sort of nurture and maintain that relationship. I think we were in... So the, the product was built in PHP and hosted in Rackspace. And this is before we sort of migrated to AWS and um, before a lot of the modern kind of techniques around microservices were in place. And so as we were sort of scaling the infrastructure, I think the early DevOps teams, um, such as Morgan, recognized that the way we were handling inventory across multiple locations at scale was not, was not quite right for scale. The, the technical architecture is a little bit beyond my expertise, but effectively we have to refactor some of our inventory infrastructure and um and and during the migration there was a period of maybe five or six hours where um you know inventory updates were were meant to be sharding off to different servers but instead of going to individual ones they were pointing to multiple at the same time and so retailers ended up with um you know inventory that was being counted incorrectly and you know at the time we probably had about a thousand users and it you know it was about three or four hours worth of data that we had to go back and clean up and it only kind of became evident after the fact and i think vaughn was actually overseas at the time and so it was like a was like oh stop the line <laughs> we got to look into this because it started to come through support tickets and then um and it, we ended up spending a good couple of months like effectively cleaning up we kind of had to go case by case through each customer take the details wind it back and then re you know I don't know whether they had to do a stock take or not, but it was a pretty major deal for an early stage company and a lot of kind of trust with those early early customers. And I think um, we didn't actually churn a lot of customers, but I think a lot of the kind of brand equity that we had with those some of those earlier cu customers was was damaged. I think, um, you know, it, it impacted our relationship with Shopify, a major partner, because obviously the inventory was sinking with them. And so their customers picked up on it and, and they would have had a bunch of negative reviews. I'm not saying that's why they went and bought a point of sale company and released their own product, but you know, we definitely had a kind of possibly an opportunity cost associated with that. And um and you know it was a really important lesson for us as a team on stability, engineering practices, I guess t testing, rollbacks, all of those kind of things which became a really big feature of the team as we scaled. Um but it was a real yeah it was definitely a bit of a wake up call. And I think I think in the, in the years after that, there was a lot more focus on um, stability, reliability, making sure that we had DevOps teams in place, making sure that, you know, we, we were careful in how we did those rollouts. Now, I don't know whether that came at the expense of feed, speed of, of feature development or not, um, but I, I definitely say it remained a tension in the company in the years that followed between 
you know, doing things fast and doing things well. Um, and um, and I, I mean, I don't know whether any company sort of solves that <laughs> effectively or not. No, I think it's a, I think it's a um, eternal tension, right, between, you know, shipping things and getting them out the door and, and making sure that they're done really well. But I think also, like, in the early days, I think Vend attracted early adopters to technology. Um, and so, you you know, because there weren't all that many features, um, you know, and so I remember on that on that week on support you know constant refrain was well the workaround for this is dot 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 (laughs) 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 workaround yeah the number one keyword and i helped yeah yeah, that's right (laughs) yeah um and so but then as the you know as it grows as you're as you're um as you can't reach that I don't know if critical mass is the right word, but you certainly get out of that early adopter um, thing. That's when I think that people are not going to tolerate um, the, you know, if it's if it's buggy. If you you know if you've got an early adopter and there's a bug there, they're going to go, oh my god, I found a bug. I'm going to report that bug, you know. And you know these people who are going to you know get in early and be part of the feature roadmap and you know, like really excited to be, um, you know, the beginning stages of something. But then you get people who uh, just want something that just works and they're not prepared to tolerate the, the buggy workarounds. Um, and then I think the stability becomes um, more important. But I, I think there's always that kind of tricky question. What's the right mix? Um, yeah, it's a, I think a good point you raised there, which is worth touching on, is like, you know, in the early days of, of a market where there's relatively few players in a massive market, um, you know, your customers can be more forgiving of that. If, if, if you're like, there's really only you and one or two others who do cloud-based point of sale that work on an iPad and it costs 50 bucks a month, then you might be eliminating tons of people who want all the features, but there's enough people in the market to, to kind of give you pretty astronomical growth but i think as the market quickly gets more crowded as prices become more competitive and and, you know more features become available especially you know in this day and age where the speed of development the speed of feature release and stability is a lot easier because a lot of these services are baked out of the box that's where we really start to notice the impact of stability on things like churn rate customer support customer satisfaction and so it became critical that we had both you know features attractive price point and um and stability under the hood the last thing I'd add to that as well is I think thinking back in those early days, um, you know, we, we were pretty green, not to kind of call out the color of the brand, but there weren't that many engineers in New Zealand at the time who had scaled large software businesses globally. And so a lot of the, a lot of the speed bumps that we hit, we were sort of learning for the first time. I know Xero's kind of faced the same thing. Even today, it's like Xero is an enterprise software that serves millions and millions of users it's pretty unusual to have that level of feature complexity across that larger user base and so when you're looking for examples of who's done scaling on this this kind of order of magnitude it's not that common globally it's not even it's definitely not that common in new zealand and so actually an interesting observation my brother-in-law rowan who was the first sort of front-end engineer at vend the second the job he got after he left vend was at uh, slack and and you know he said it was just incredible the kind of 
depth of talent you had in a market like San Francisco, where you had people who'd come from Google, had come from Microsoft or Salesforce, who had scaled those large uh, software businesses before. And so they they brought those lessons with them. So they weren't kind of making those mistakes on the fly, as we probably did in the early days. And I, I think that that will benefit New Zealand in the years to come when you've got a much greater depth of talent of both the sort of operationally and technically scaled organizations that could help those companies, you know, sort of get it right from the first rather than uh, sort of make it up as they go along, which often happens in the early stages of a company. I also think, though, and I don't know, I'm just sort of extending this a little bit, but these are the sorts of things, right, that you're constantly trying to figure out around the exec table. You know, do what what are, what are we doing here? Are we going to do this? We're going to do that. We're going to find a way through the middle. And coming back to that, um, you know, conversation earlier about diversity, and ensuring that you have, you know, like a lot of different ways of thinking about things, I think are really important because you're constantly trying to solve really complex questions that there really isn't a right answer to. Um, and so your ability as a team to figure out, uh, you know, what you're going to do um, and, you know, with incomplete information and all the rest of it becomes super important. And, you know, like you say, Nick, it's, you know, it's hard to know, like, what would have happened if we'd done this thing instead of that thing that we did do? Um, but obviously, how to do that? Speed of decision-making is really important, recognising which decisions can be reversed and and a strong culture so that there isn't that sense of blame, right? If, if something goes wrong, it's not, it's not an individual's fault. It's like actually organisation, we have to accept that things aren't always going to work out, but we've got to have the culture to be able to see our way through it to learn from it and to kind of, you know, build on that to get us to the next stage. Now, hey, I've got a question, Nick. Uh, to what extent do you think in those early days were we using kind of design thinking methodology to to create our product? Uh, not as much as I would have liked. We weren't even really using product management. No. <laughs> frameworks. We didn't really have product management until about 2013 or mm. 14, I think. We, we kind of had engineers, analysts, and marketing and sales, and we came up with features together. Like It, it wasn't really until I think Trent was our first kind of head yeah, of product, yeah, yeah. and we didn't build we – didn't, we didn't have, you know, the, what you'd think of today as the classic structure where you've got product manager, product owner, designer, pods. Um, and, and, you know, certainly when you've only got 20 people in the company, it wasn't necessary. And so it was very much – I guess Vaughan was the kind of chief product officer and then we had engineers that would deliver features and we had, I mean, I think Amiria was our first designer. She came at the end of 2011 and she was doing both marketing and product design together. Until that point, we were borrowing Amnon out of Southgate Labs. And so I yes. think, I think I was always slightly jealous that Zero had Philip on the founding team. They had a designer on the founding team and I thought it would be great if we had more design in the, in the organization. And so I think, um, I think we didn't have as much design dead thinking as we needed to, but I, I think it wasn't as well established, at least in, in the industry that we were in at the time. And we we were very late to um, QA. I think it was Matt Lyons, our first QA person that transferred from yeah uh, yeah potentially QA. Yeah, I think we were very we were very late to that party. Um. So. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, looking back now with the, I mean, obviously the software was successful. Obviously, we didn't have any catastrophic failures. Um, you know, we we must have done something right along the way. And so it's, but it's, 
it's interesting to reflect on the decisions that you've made and think, well, you know, are we successful because of those decisions or in spite of them? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. It's interesting. I, th- I think that, I think there was enough of a core team that were there through enough of the journey to be able to, you know, to have good, you know, enough good information, enough good trust in each other to, to make those decisions and to back, back each other with those decisions. I think Vaughan, myself, JC, you, Angus, uh, Sherrard, Ben, like it was actually a pretty stable team for a yeah. period of three or three to five years. And I think that that will buy you a lot of um, goodwill and, and will see you through a lot of kind of not necessarily having the right practices, not necessarily having all the experience, having, um, you know, having all the methodologies or, or kind of making things up as you go along. Because I think, you you know, you can learn a lot as you go, as long as you've got a kind of core team with a good culture that's prepared to challenge each other. Yeah, I think, oh, can I just say one other thing, Bradley, which I think, because I think I was going to mention it before, but I didn't, which was just to pick up on your word there, Nick, about that trust. Like we had a, we, we had a really high trust team, didn't we? Um, super mm. high trust. Mm. And so you're dead right. You know, if someone said to me, she'll be right, I'd be like, okay, well, next year's it'll be right. So it'll be right. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not saying that there weren't, there wasn't a little bit of turnover in the exec team. Like any startup, typically people, you know, some people come, some people survive, some people don't. But I think as long as you've got a kind of core, stable group, I think that helps a lot. Mm. So from my perspective as, as I guess, event outsider, if you will, the, the Lightspeed acquisition looked like it came out from the blue, but a lot of these things are stories that involve hardships that have been grown over years or maybe even a couple of failed attempts at acquisitions that have succeeded in the next time around. I know that neither of you were inside the tent at that time, but I presume you have some sense of, of how that went down. What catalyzed the, the Lightspeed acquisition and what came before it? My my sense is that you know we we go back to Vaughan and his um, building relationships thing, and his you know always keeping um, that relationship with Lightspeed, you know, pretty friendly and warm and collaborative and all of that kind of stuff, um, which you I mean obviously Lightspeed isn't just going to go and buy companies because they like founders needs to be something more there but I think the, the again coming da- down to that relationship um you know can be really important when you're going th- going through this this process yeah we we met with we met with the team years ago in San Francisco and um and had dinner it was a sort of quite it was just like it's a real but interesting moment because you were you were competing but you were also like had exactly the same pain points exactly the same problems and and it was like very cathartic to have a chat and so our relationships were you know, they, they talked a lot about how they admired the stuff we were doing and, you know, tried to replicate it and we would kind of said the same thing. And so it was the same with other competitors. I remember standing in a booth next to the founder of Counter. It, it was, I think this was at the PayPal event where my wife was due to give birth to twins. And, um, you know, when we're at, at our desk and we're looking at what they're doing, it was like, you're feeling really competitive. But actually when you chat with them, it's like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to solve the same thing with the same customer and the same problem. You don't give away all your trade secrets, but it's quite it's quite cordial. And so I think, um, I think we'd always maintain good relationships and therefore, um, and, and like in the early stages of a startup, you're always entertaining, um, capital investment. You're always entertaining acquisition offers. There were, there were more than a few in the early days that progressed to a reasonable stage, but the business just wasn't ready at that point. And, you know, those, those conversations often, 
uh, don't sort of disappear forever. They might come back in future. And so I think part of part of growing a company is is thinking about your exit strategy, whether that's um, you know IPO, whether that's exit, whether that's um, any number of things. And therefore, like you're always kind of raising capital, you always have an eye on what the future might be. And partnerships can play a role in that. Um, investors can play a role on that. Competitors can play a role on that, and therefore keep keep your doors open, and um, and you never know when one of them might become um, something real in the future. And I think it's so much of you know that whole acquisition piece is have we finished like because I know that you know there were a few nibbles from people early on, and that you know when Ford and I were still together, so quite early on. Was like okay, well, if we sell now, also you know, like who's buying you? Because there's always normally a cash and stocks component. So what are these stocks worth? And blah blah that that whole sort of thing. But you know, if we sell now, then what are we missing out on? You know, because we hundred percent believe in your proposition. Hundred percent can see the the massive um, potential there. So what are you? Um, you know, what are you potentially, what's the upside that you're missing out on if you sell now um, is a major question, I think. And like many of the should we have questions that have been raised in this episode, one will never know for sure. I hope those involved are quite satisfied with the outcome from the Lightspeed acquisition. And hopefully we benefit now from the wisdom of Mel and Nick and others that have been part of the Venn journey. I want to thank them both again for their time and sharing their experiences. And next episode, we'll be welcoming new guests. This has been 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know, and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.